Well, let's get into the Word this morning. Have you ever wondered or have you ever thought about, um, well, Jesus in general, right? I'm sure all of you have thought about Jesus. <laughs> have you ever considered... Have you ever considered just uh, his humanity, I guess? I mean, we so often, you know, we talk so often about, well, Jesus is God, and this is true, right? But he's, he also was a human. Do you know that Jesus had to learn? Does that shock anybody? No? It kind of does me sometimes once in a while because, I, you know, I think so often, well, Jesus, it's God. He knows everything. But he actually set aside his omniscience, he couldn't be everywhere, he couldn't know everything all the time, right? He said, he said, actually, he only knew and he only spoke what the Father told him to say and to speak. So he actually had to learn things. You know, he, he was a baby. He had dirty diapers, right? The Savior of the universe, the King of the universe. And that's not blasphemous, right? He entered into it on purpose, so... um in fact, let's turn a couple of passages here I want us to be aware of or to turn to. Luke chapter 2, um, to start with. Luke 2, this is a well-known story. You'll recognize the account, I'm sure. Luke chapter 2 and verse 41. Now, Jesus is about 12 years old, or he is 12 years old, it says here. And it says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, like all good Jewish families did. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were, re- were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know that, but supposing him to be in the group, they went on about a day's journey. And, and then, of course, when they began to search for him and realized he wasn't there, they panicked, as all good parents will. Um, isn't that amazing that there was a whole day went by before they knew that their son was missing? At different times, right? Five minutes, one of our kids is missing, and we're like, whoo, in a panic. So, um, so they searched, didn't find him. After three days, they found, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers. Now listen to this part. Sitting among the teachers. He's listening to them and asking them questions. So he wasn't providing all the answers. He actually was learning in those moments. What was he learning? Scripture, right? He would have been learning the Torah um, and the rest of the Scripture, the Tanakh. Um, so he's listening, asking questions. He also apparently was answering some questions. They probably asked him a few questions along the way as well. And they were amazed, it tells us. They were amazed, verse 47 all who heard him were amazed at his understanding at his, and at his answers. And then, of course, you know the rest of the story. His parents find him, and, and it's like, why would you do this to me? And didn't you know I needed to be in my father's house? Which, an answer they really didn't understand. And then drop down to verse 52. And it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. In other words, Jesus continued to learn and to grow, Right? Quite an amazing thing that the the creator of the world, the creator of the universe, the creator of everything, learned because he took on humanity, he took on human flesh. Uh, other place that talks about him learning is Hebrews five eight. It says Jesus learned obedience, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Um, 
And in Hebrews 4.15, we're reminded that he was tempted in every way. It says we, have, we don't have a high priest who can't relate to us because he was tempted in every way and yet without sin. What would that be like to, to not have sin distracting your mind all the time, right? If it's, if it's like my mind, at least, we're distracted by sin quite frequently. Uh, but Jesus didn't have that. Now, he had temptations like the rest of us, but he wasn't drawn away to sin like we are. So no brain damage from sin, right? We are, our brains are damaged from sin. Um, he had the perfect interface with the Spirit. He clearly heard what God spoke to him. And how did God speak to him? Well, along with that clear hearing, he had perfect obedience, right? Well, God spoke to him through Scripture, also through prayer, we know, but through Scripture. Um, and John 5, verses 19 and 20, he says he only is doing what the Father is doing and what the Father has shown him to do. And in John 12, it says that he speaks what the Father told him to speak. So he's got this really direct connection, right? We actually have that same direct connection through the Holy Spirit. We just have uh, a whole lot of baggage and a whole lot of bad filters that things are going through. And we're not very obedient, typically. I mean, come on. I'm not, at least, all the time, all that obedient. Maybe you guys are, are more obedient than I am, and that's that's a good thing. Um, but Jesus was perfect in, a, in his obedience, Heard from the Father, did what the Father said, did only what the Father told him to do, or only what he saw the Father doing. We also know that the second way that he communicated, the way that he interacted with and received um, what he should do, was through prayer. And on multiple occasions, we read about Jesus praying. He prayed alone, and um, I'll give you just one verse with each one of these, okay? So he prayed alone, Matthew 14, verse 23. He prayed in public, John 11. 41 to 42. He prayed before meals, Matthew 26, 26. He prayed before important decisions, Luke 6, 12 to 13. This is right before he chose the 12 disciples. He prayed and heard from the Father. Before healing, he prayed, Mark 7, 34 and 35. He prayed after healing, Luke 5, 16. And he prayed to do the Father's will, Matthew 26 in the garden. Now, the astonishing thing, what's so different about Jesus than us, is he acted on what he, what he learned and what he heard, demonstrating obedience once again. Um, and then in Matthew 20, 28, he says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The second part of that, the ransom, uh, giving his life as a ransom for many, is a direct quote out of Isaiah 53. And... Uh, Pastor Rick started a little series that we are going to continue from now through September 2nd on the servant songs. There's four of them, and I'll give you the passages for those here in a moment. But um, just to, by way of a bit of advertisement, Wednesday nights, September 20th, I think it is, the third Wednesday night of September anyway, we'll be starting a series going all the way through Isaiah. So this is just a little precursor to that. These are some of the four of the big highlights that are going to happen this Sunday and over the next three Sundays as we go through the servant songs. But we just invite you to consider coming and um, joining us in that study on Wednesday nights. Isaiah is considered the Old Testament, or it is the Old Testament. Duh. Um, <laughs> it's considered the, the gospel of the Old Testament because Jesus' life... And the new covenant and the way that God's going to do things is so clearly laid out. Um, so I'm going to give you just a little bit of background here this morning about Isaiah. 
And uh, just to let you know, the servant oracles of Isaiah, they point directly at the Messiah, which, as we all know, is Jesus Christ. So the book of Isaiah was written by Isaiah, of all people, in the 8th century, about 740 B.C. So if you're familiar with Jewish history or, or history of um, that nation in that time frame, uh, by 740, it's a divided monarchy. Around 930, after King Solomon's reign, civil war split into two countries, essentially the north referred to as Israel, the south referred to as Judah in Scripture. Um, and oftentimes both of those refer to all of the people, but when they're talking about those nations, the northern and southern kingdoms, it's Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And... Um, Again, just a, a, a reminder, if you're not familiar about this historic setting, they had a, they had a fabulous kingdom under King David. In fact, um, they had a theocracy, probably the, well, not probably, the best form of government that's ever existed on earth was in Israel under King David and under King Solomon. It was a theocracy. It was God's man on the throne serving overseeing and serving his people, worshiping God, and it, it was fabulous until people screwed it up, right, which we're wont to do. Um, but under the divided monarchy, there's idolatry, injustice, and ceremonial religiosity, ceremonial uh, relying on the religious ceremony, relying on the fact that they had the temple, relying on the fact that they had the, the Ark of the Covenant, thinking that all of these things protected them. But those things didn't protect them at all. Yahweh protected them. Yahweh was their God, not these things. They were putting too much hope and faith in it. They thought God would never destroy the temple. It was part of their thinking. Um, so here's the message of the prophets, and this encapsulates from Isaiah all the way through to Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet. If you wanted to sum it up in three easy sentences, it would be something like this. What God is saying through the prophets is, listen, Judah, Israel, you've broken the covenant. Repent. You've broken the covenant. Deuteronomy, the whole book of Deuteronomy, that's basically essentially the covenant that God made with them, um, the second stating of the law. He says, you've broken that. Now repent. No repentance? Judgment. Judgment is coming on you and on the nations. Yet, the rest of the message coming from the prophet says, yet hope of glorious restoration is coming for you and for the nations. Now, two servants are mentioned in the book of Isaiah. There's very clearly, it says that Israel, my servant, speaking of the nation, speaking of God's chosen people, Israel, my servant. Um, and yet, it also speaks of Israel being blind. Um, so Israel was the servant that failed. And yet, God still loved them. Doesn't that give you hope? <laughs> it gives me hope, because I know that God loves me and I fail, but he still, he still loves me. Uh, and then there's this other servant who succeeds at everything that Israel was supposed to do, Israel's ultimate representative. And he, he serves by dying. <laughs> it's like, what? The suffering servant, Isaiah 53. Now we'll get there in a few weeks. Um, Pastor Bill has the, the privilege of teaching through through that one, which is the most famous of the servant songs or the servant oracles, but um, but he's the servant who succeeds, unnamed in in Isaiah, unnamed in the Old Testament. But if you read the servant songs, there's no way it can point to anybody except Jesus. And one of the reasons is because Jesus actually read it. Okay, he read the scripture and he goes, 
this is me. This is talking about me. And then he fulfilled it, um, which would be impossible for any human to just read the Scripture and then fulfill all of these things, right? But Jesus, because he is God and because God the Father was working towards the same goal, was able to fulfill these Scriptures. Um, as he claimed multiple times, he says, Scripture must be fulfilled. This must happen to fulfill Scripture. So we've got the servant who succeeds, and that is Jesus. Um, I'll give you the four, if you want to write these down so that you can read ahead, here are the four servant oracles, and there's a little bit of debate about where they start, where they end, and maybe there's a couple of others, but these are the four that everybody pretty much agrees on. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, which is where we're going to be this morning. You're welcome to find that in your Bible if you'd like to. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Isaiah 49, 1 through 6. Isaiah 50, 4 through 9. And then Isaiah 52, 12 through all of chapter 53 in Isaiah. And that's the one when you read it that you're going to go, oh, yeah, I know this one. We sing songs. We, we write songs out of that. He was pierced for our transgressions. Um, verses you'd recognize in there. So I'll go through them again. 42, 1 through 9. 49, 1 through 6. 50, 4 through 9. And 52, 12 through 53, 13. Now, the New Testament writers saw all of this as pointing directly at Jesus, Messiah. And we will see that as we go through. Um, so again, you can turn to Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, and I'll tell you a couple of things about this, and then we're going to read through it. It's only nine verses. Um, there are two movements in this poem, okay, two sections, essentially. The first four verses are a word about the servant, telling what he's, what, telling things about the servant. The second four verses, verse 5 through 9, are a word directly to the servant, which is interesting. God speaking to himself through the scripture, um, kind of a mind blower, but, um, but it's speaking directly to the servant. And we'll see why as we go through. Four things we're going to see. As we're introduced to the servant, we're going to see his identity. We're going to see his mission. We're going to see his character. And we're going to see his method. So let's read it. Isaiah chapter 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, thus says Elohim, Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. Notice the shift here in, in, uh, from verse 5 on, speaking directly. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, 
I tell you of them. An incredible bit of scripture here. Uh, we see his identity right in the beginning here, and his identity is astonishing, but it's resisted in the New Testament. It's resisted. Notice how it says, "Behold, my servant." This word "behold" is is it's like look. If if it, if there were sound effects, if we had sound effects, it's going to be like ta-da, behold, my servant. This is directly quoted by Matthew at Jesus's baptism. Um, uh, in fact, why don't you t- turn there? Keep your place, um, but turn to Matthew chapter three. Keep your place in uh, Isaiah. Uh, chapter 3, verse 16. 3.16. It says, and, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God. So John sees, John the Baptist sees, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Matthew is quoting this verse in Isaiah the uh, 42.1, the behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit on him. John sees the, the spirit in the form of a dove descending on Jesus. This is God's spirit coming upon Jesus um, and talking again, this, this uh, in whom my soul delights. This is my beloved son. Uh, Matthew is directly quoting Isaiah here. Uh, so he's unique, uniquely chosen and he's delightful to God. Um, secondly, he's uniquely anointed with God's mind and spirit. He is living a human life that's uninhibited by sin, filled with God's spirit. He's a human expression of God himself, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, Colossians 1.19. In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Secondly, second thing that we see is his mission. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Um, his mission is stunning, but it's misunderstood. He didn't come to rescue Israel from Rome. But he actually came to rescue, or he came uh, to rescue the world from sin, to make the world as it should be. Uh, justice, he's bringing justice to the entire world. And this is verses 1 through 4, this whole section here speaks of this. Bringing justice to the entire world. Um, bringing to the nations. This, the word there is goya. It means basically everybody who's not Jewish. It's the... the normal people, the common people outside of the Jewish context or outside of the Jewish religion. Um, and then the coastlands, the islands, to the farthest reaches. Uh, if you're familiar at all with missions, this should be clicking. You should, there should be bells going off. This sounds just like Matthew 28. It sounds just like Acts 1-8, um, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the uttermost outreaches of the world. Uh, same kind of idea here. This servant is going to bring justice to the world. Now, that's great. What's justice, though? I mean, there's a, there's multiple layers of justice, and there's at least three biblical ideas that come from this word. Um, the Hebrew word is mishpat, which is a word you should be familiar with. There's maybe not a... I don't know a whole lot of Hebrew, but mishpat is one of the words I'm familiar with. Hesed is another one that is very important in the Old Testament you should be familiar with. It means covenant love, um, unconditional covenant love. Uh, so mishpat, mishpat is justice, and it's used three times here. Now, 
when we think of justice, we think retribution and, and uh, you know, eye for an eye, oftentimes we do at least, um, eye for an eye, making things right in this way, but it has a much broader context biblically. And in this context here, at least one of the meetings is that, is that it's taking things that are crooked and making them straight, taking things that are wrong and making them right, writing all, writing, making right all that is wrong in the world. And this is the mission of this servant. Uh, making things the way they should be, morally, culturally, relational truth, so that we so that, so that we don't have to hide from each other, right? Um, relational truth and rightness. It's about ultimate truth in, in all these areas. I don't know. Don't you get tired of pretending to be things that you're not? Sometimes. Uh, there's a day coming when you won't have to pretend anymore because you'll actually be as good as you'd like to make everybody think you are. As good as you think you are in your own brain, better than you think you are. Because um, we oftentimes think we're way better than we are, right? Um, so that tiredness we're going to be able to enter into is rest because of this justice and we're not going to be, we don't have to put a mask on anymore. Um, justice is the Lord's truth and the truth about the Lord. And take note of this, please. This truth is not something that people search for. It's not something that they grow into. It's not something they go out and discover. It's something that's brought to them by a revealing agent. Something that's brought to them from God. Truth comes from God. It's not this ethereal concept that's out there that we get to go discover. Um, It actually comes from God. And he reveals truth to us. We need this justice. I mentioned the Davidic kingdom, the Solomon, that whole reign, that it was the best government that ever existed on earth. Um, and I, I still, I hold, I, I would argue that with anybody. It is the best government that's ever existed. I think man's best effort at government is probably the, the country that we live in, democracy or representative republic, right? A better form of democracy, really. Uh, probably the best effort that man's ever put forth. How's our justice doing? How's our idolatry as a nation? How about our religious, our reliance on religious ceremonialism in so many sectors of our, of our country? We're failing in all these places as well. And, and we're only, we're, we're, we're almost 250 years old, right? Won't 2024 be 250 years if my math's right? Something like that. And we're on a, seems like we're on a serious decline around justice. I mean, Somebody's drawn back the curtain and exposed all the injustice in what should have should be a just form of government, right? So man's best effort, God's best effort among men, because men were in charge of it, has failed, in a sense. It's accomplished what God wanted it to. And man's best effort at government has also failed. We need the justice that this servant is bringing. Um. So I said there are three biblical ideas about mishpat, a mishpat around this, uh, this form of justice. It's ultimate truth. First, it's truth of God's reality and His presence. There's only one God, and His name is Yahweh. The broader context of the passages that we're, look, we're in here this morning from uh, chapter 40 through, well, really till the end of the book, but especially 40 through 44, 45, um, is God versus idols. God God um, really making a mockery of the things that people are putting their faith and trust in. Uh, in fact, why don't you turn back just a few pages to chapter 40 in Isaiah. Chapter 40, verse 
I just want to highlight a few verses here. We're not going to read very much of this, but um, it's actually fairly humorous if you allow yourself to hear what he's saying. But the, the first part, so from chapter 40 through 55 is, is very comforting. It's actually a consolate. It's, it's known as the consolation book in Isaiah. Um, because the first part, the first 39 verses, or before you get to the Hezekiah story at least, is pretty primarily all judgment, although there's always glimpses of hope. And now we see more hope with glimpses of judgment in 40 through 55. Um, so just the opening line here, verse 40, chapter 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, cry to her that her warfare is ended. Down in verse 3, uh, Verse 3, you'll recognize this. The voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Sound familiar? John the Baptist, right? Yeah, all this is a precursor to being introduced to the servant, just like John the Baptist introduced the servant in the New Testament, right? Um, Jumping ahead a little further, verse 18, because I said this whole section here is about this comparison, God and idols. Verse 18, he asks the question, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman crafts it. A goldsmith lays gold or overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. And then if somebody's not, they don't have enough money for a metal idol, they make one out of wood. And then he seeks out a craftsman who can keep that idol from toppling over. Because it can't stand on its own, right? That's the idea. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. It's Yahweh. It's talking about Yahweh, right? And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. We're like grasshoppers. Isn't that comforting? <laughs> By comparison to God, we are. Um, and then jump ahead a little further, verse, uh, chapter 41. Big theme in 41 is fear not, for I am with you. But he speaks directly at the futility of idols starting in chapter 21. And he's laying out this, this, uh, almost like a courtroom scene. The whole book of Isaiah really starts off like a courtroom scene. And, and you see it again here. Verse 21 of chapter 41. He says, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let him bring them and tell us what is to happen. In other words, he's saying, let your idols speak. Can they predict the future? Can they tell anything about what has happened, about what is happening or what's going to happen? And then he claims that he can and, and proves it by doing so, right? Um, we won't turn there, but chapter 44, it talks about a, a, a guy who goes out and, and cuts up wood and he uses some of it to cook with and he uses some of it to stay warm by his fire. And then he makes an idol out of the rest of it. And God's looking at that going, what are you thinking? You made that with your own hands, and now you're worshiping it? Brain damage. Sinful brain damage, right? And it affects all of us at one level or another. We all have idols of some sort. We just don't go out and make carve images, usually. Um, So justice. uh, The first point of this justice is the truth of God's reality and His presence. There can be no ultimate justice if there is no God. The wrongs of the world cannot be made right if there's not a just God. <clears throat> a second, the, second, the truth of the way God created things to be. Um, so this is that straightening out of things that I was talking about, making things right, bringing everything materially, morally, spiritually, everything centered on Him, expressing His goodness in relationships. Um, well, what is that? 
well, it's love, but it's not sappy sentimentalism like we oftentimes think of love. It's that has said that I talked about earlier. It's real sacrificial love. It's taking everything that's truly good and loving, um, the way that it was meant to be, that those things, everything that's good and loving was meant to be eternal and normal. And that sounds great, right? But that's actually really bad news for us because of our sin. Uh, because in our world, things are normally unjust and unloving. So we need the justice that this servant brings. Third, the truth about just and social relational order. And this includes judging evil. Turn to uh, Psalm 96. So back to the left in your Old Testament, just before Proverbs. Psalm 96, verse 11. The psalmist says, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. All of creation being glad, rejoicing. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Judgment is coming. God is coming back. And this is the retribution portion of judgment. There is retributive, um, a retribu- retributive meaning in that word mishpat. Um, and this is where we see it. Punishing all evil, correcting all moral wrong. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But this ultimately leads to virtue, creating a society where retribution is no longer needed. Future hope, right? Where, where retribution is no longer needed. Why? Well, because there's justice for all the nations, justice for everyone. Uh, and what that looks like, it's where or when we're promoting goodness, honesty, love, unity in society at all levels, at all levels. This is our goal now. It's our goal now. We should be partnering with people who are attempting to do this, who are trying to bring this about. We're not going to be able to do it perfectly until the Lord returns, but we should be involved in things that are bringing about justice, things that are um, protecting and caring for the disenfranchised, for widows, orphans, aliens, the poor, those being trafficked. Um, there's a, a advertisement again. There's a there's a movie out called uh, The Sound of Freedom, and if, there's been a bit of uh, from some people, some corners. There's been a little bit of uh, oh, I don't I don't know if we should see that. I don't know if we should support that because the Catholic Church is in, involved, or you know Jim Caviezel is a is a Catholic and. And Angel Studios, which is a Mormon-run or Mormon-owned uh, studio, um, they're they're part of the funding behind this. So I don't. We shouldn't get involved in that. I mean, it makes it look like we agree with everything those people agree with. Horsepucky. <laughs> the things that they're they're when they get behind something that that is that good and that right. I don't care what religion they are. We should be joining in with, the, in with them, supporting them. It doesn't mean we agree with their theology, okay? We don't have to agree with people's theology to get involved on social justice issues, um, which is a buzzword in our culture, right? And I'm, I'm, I mean, I bristle when people start talking about social justice, okay, a little bit sometimes because it has so many, so much baggage with it. But social justice is very important in God's kingdom, very important to God's heart. That's 
what these verses in chapter 42 are all about is justice and social justice. It was one of the three main things that Israel was judged for. I mentioned them earlier, but maybe not this clearly. They were judged for idolatry. They were judged for, for social injustice within their culture. And they were judged for this idea of religion, uh, religious ceremonialism, putting their faith in the things they were doing rather in the person who gave them that religion or gave them those things to do. Um, so again, we should be partnering, supporting anyone who's doing good work, and then we can bring the influence of Christianity into that environment as well, right? Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so we've looked at two things so far. His identity is amazing, but it's resisted. We see that in the New Testament primarily, the resistance. Uh, his mission is stunning, but it's misunderstood. In case I didn't hit this clear enough, Israel was expecting their Messiah to come and rescue them from Rome, to deliver them from Rome. He actually came to deliver not just Israel, but the whole world from sin, a much bigger bondage than Roman occupation. Um, so he was misunderstood. Third thing, his character is humble and it's unexpected. It's different. It's a very different character than we expect from a ruler who's going to bring justice. Because we think it requires nothing but retribution. Retributive justice is the only means. Well, that's not the case. Jesus um, is quiet. He's compassionate. And he's the exact opposite of what the Jews expected from a Messiah. He works around the edges with um, people like you and me that, you know, maybe some of us have some prominence in the culture and in our society, but for the most part, it's the fringe people that he's working with, especially in the Jewish culture. He's working with prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, right? I fit into that category, sinners. So thankfully, the Lord is working through us as well. You too, yes. <laughs> yeah. Working around the fringes through unimpressive people. Um, people are not in the upper echelons of society. They're also not dominating. Jesus wasn't dominating in this public discourse. Um, he didn't try to shout down his opponents. This isn't the way that God does things. Think about all the healings that Jesus did. What did he usually tell the people to do? Say it louder. Don't tell. Yeah. He wasn't throwing up big banners and signs and saying, hey, Jesus' healing ministry is coming to town you know, come and, and watch the miracle worker. He just did things quietly and said, essentially said, you're healed, go and sin no more, right? I mean, this is kind of the message. Um, so he's working at a grassroots level, right? And uh, doing it quietly. Now, does that mean we shouldn't proclaim from the mountaintops the glory of God? Absolutely not. We should do that. We should be proclaiming. It's fine to be out on the street preaching, Um as long as we're pointing, bringing glory to God. Uh, but do just take note of the quiet, compassionate, kind manner that Jesus displayed his ministry in, right? Um, he was humble, even though, as he says in the garden, I, don't you know that I could ask the Father and he'd send legions of angels to come protect me? I mean, so this is meekness, right? This is power, ultimate power, really, in Jesus' case, under control. Uh, and that's the kind of example that he set for us, what he calls us into also. Um, the other way that he's unexpected is that he's speaking into the grief and brokenness, brokenness of life. He's not seeking out the successful, um, the rich, uh, you know, the, 
the great sports figures or the great heroes of our culture. Now, certainly some of those people get saved, but he's generally seeking out the lost and the needy within cultures and within societies. Um, the other thing, when it talks about a bruised reed he will not crush, nor uh, uh, a burning wick that he won't snuff out, he builds up. He's not tearing down. So he's not... Uh, He's not berating people because of their sin. He points their sin out to them. And again, says, you know, go and sin no more. But he's not belittling. He's not uh, degradating them. He's building people up. And this is what it's talking about with a bruised reed. He won't, he won't break. Um, or he won't snuff out things that are happening. Bruising is an interesting thing, um, because it, it's a contusion that oftentimes is, is, can be deep in the body and not seen on the surface, which is a good reminder to us that if he's not um, crushing a bruised reed like that, we need to be quick to offer up grace and mercy. We don't know what other people have experienced. We don't know what's broken inside of them. We don't know what they've experienced or what, you know, what they're going through. Uh, another thing that he does is he loves the brokenhearted. He loves the bruised, crushed people. Um, and one of the reasons is because they're most in touch with the fallenness of the world, and they recognize the need for grace and mercy. I'm just going to read a few psalms to you and a couple of passages out of Isaiah. I'm not going to give you the address right now, but um, it, the psalmist says this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. He heals the brokenhearted, and he binds up their wounds. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus ministers to the brokenhearted among us. We need to as well. The fourth thing here is his his methodology, his method. And it costs him everything, but it's oh so necessary for us. In verse 6, the second half of verse 6, it says, I will give you as a covenant. A blood covenant that is a person. Verses 5 through 9. Um, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And if you remember what happens when... And this, this was typical in this culture, um, but also the way that God demonstrated a covenant relationship is that uh, they would take animals of various kinds and they would split them in half and lay them out on both sides of a pathway. And uh, so a lot of blood and guts happening here, and these animals are killed, right, and they're laid out, displayed out on both sides of of a trail, presumably, or a walkway. And then whoever was um, the lesser of stature of the two people in this covenant would walk through. And basically what they were saying was, we're declaring a covenant together today, and if if I break, being the lower vessel, if I break this covenant, so be it done to me what has been done to these animals. Okay, so it's so it's essentially saying, 
I will be a blood sacrifice or I will die if I break this covenant. Do you remember what Abraham was doing when God made that covenant with him? Sleeping, yeah. And what did God do? God essentially walked through, right, and said, I will pay the price. I will be the blood covenant. And now he's, from our perspective, he's done that. From their perspective, he's going to do this through Jesus Christ. Um, so a blood covenant. Interesting, just a side note, nothing more to say on this other than just to point out that it, it is interesting that God honored Abraham with this covenant right after he made uh, an offering to God through this mysterious character Melchizedek, the uh, high priest of Jerusalem uh, or of Salem, who we know very little about, but just... Genesis 14, 15. We just went through Genesis, right? It's on Sunday, so you probably remember it, but, um, just read that. It's a, it's an incredible bit of scripture. And, and the order of things is important, right? Abraham offers, essentially tithes and offerings to God. And Yahweh, God honors Abraham with this covenant right after that. Um, so method. We're looking at his method. What is this method? How will it happen? Well, it's going to happen through God's own power. The creator himself will do it. Um, God, the God who sustains the universe, even in its broken state, he continues to sustain it. But he's also, he's the one who's created the redemption. He's the one who's made the way for redemption to happen. He gives a, his son as a covenant, as a covenant for the people, not a covenant through his son, but his son is actually the covenant. Well, what does this mean? Well, it means that God justifies through Christ alone exclusivity here, right? He justifies only through Christ. Verses 6 through 7 is speaking directly. This is God, Yahweh, speaking directly to uh, the servant, to Messiah. And the covenantal God declares, I called you. You can see this in verses 6 through 7 of Isaiah 42. I called you. I'm keeping you. I am making you a covenant. And then later Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, and this is the new covenant in my blood. So the creative God of the universe personally promises a secure salvation. He says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the covenant God, Yahweh. I alone can save and predict that salvation. Tell about it before it's going to happen. The last verse there, he says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. And He's saying, I'm declaring them to you before they happen so that you'll know that I am this God. And the way that it's going to happen, again, his method, is going to happen through suffering. The cross is where the compassion and the justice of God meet. It's where retribution is poured out so that blind, guilty sinners can be forgiven and set free. Jesus endured what would have broken us in order to give us life. He who knew, knew, knew no sin became sin so that we might become his righteousness. If you've not put your trust in him, you should this very moment, right now, today, while you hear his voice. You should put your full weight and trust down on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, you might think that I just closed, but au contraire... Uh, let me share just a few observations that we can draw out of these passages, and this, this should go fairly rapidly. Um, the gospel 
of Christ is ultimate sacrificial justice. If you want peace in our world, work for justice. Work for justice. Get involved in those activities like I was talking about. Get behind the good things that are working for justice. But do it, work for justice built on God's eternal justice, the cross. So what I mean by that is it's okay if we disagree with methodologies that are being used in our culture like the homeless, the drug situation in Oregon in particular, places where it's been legalized. Um, it's okay to resist that because that's actually causing more problems than it's helping, right? Uh, so it's okay to resist the way that our culture is saying to work with things. But it doesn't mean we should just bury our heads in the sand and not be involved. We need to have a voice there. We need to be involved in and in, uh, working in those arenas. But, again, through a justice built on God's eternal justice, built through the cross, through the paradigm of the cross. It's a mission to our own society, and we need to convey it here within our culture, within our society. Um, Micah 6.8, very famous passage, says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, mishpat, mishpat, to do mishpat, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Sounds so much like what we just read out of Isaiah as well. So promoting what is good, resisting what's bad in our culture. And again, this may entail working alongside non-Christians, and that's okay. Uh, and seeking justice for all people, but especially those who are trapped in sin, those who are trapped in poverty, those who are in abusive relationships, um, those who are being trafficked, uh, those kinds of areas. This is also a message to the whole world, to the whole world, and we need to take it there. That's why we're involved in missions at Trail Christian Fellowship. It's why we send people out. It's why we send people into foreign countries. Um, it's why we have update lunches like we're going to do right after service. Um, the nations that it speaks of, he's bringing justice to the nations. Again, that's that's people outside the Jewish cultural barriers. It's also people outside the Christian cultural barriers of Trail Christian Fellowship, of the Church Universal. Uh, we need to take the message outside of the four walls, taking it to a dying world, taking it to the coastlands, to the islands, which, as I said earlier, represents the farthest reaches of human life, the fringes, whether that's within a culture or geographically the fringes. Um, it's also this justice coming from the cross uh, from the paradigm of the cross, it's also a dynamic that's transforming us, and it needs to be showing through us. The redemption, the regeneration that will happen to the universe, it's actually happening within you and within me right now. People should be able to see that in our lives. It should be expressed. Thinking like him, living like him. He's making gentle, strong, courageous, humble people that are like Christ, molding and shaping us into his character. Last thing, it's a miracle that God does, and it's already been achieved through the cross. The ultimate bruising and crushing has happened to him. Uh, Christ has taken our blame and justified the universe, bestowing his goodness and virtue upon all those who come to him in the new covenant. That's what communion is all about. That's why we took communion earlier. Can you still taste the grace on your, on your tongue, the sweetness of the grape juice. That's God's grace coming into us and then being poured out to other people around us. Let's pray. 
Father, we are thankful for this servant that you have sent into the world. Thank you for your son Jesus, for the sacrifice that you made through him. We thank you for uh, the truth of your word, Lord. We thank you for the justice that we look forward to, the justice that you're going to bring into the whole world, this peace, harmony, um, making things right, making everything right that has been made wrong. Lord, thank you for that. Please continue to do a work in each and every one of our hearts and minds, Lord, conforming us into the image of your son, Jesus. Um, in Isaiah, it said, you don't share your glory with another. And yet in the New Testament, it says you share your glory with the son, which obviously means that he is part of the triune God. And then amazingly, in John, you say that you're going to share your glory with us, and that's a mind-blower, Lord. But thank you for that. Thank you for the redemptive power of the cross, the amazing things that that means, not just in our future, but also right now in our lives. Father, help us to live into that well, to share it in our culture, to share it cross-culturally, and just to live for you every moment of every day, Lord, being quick to repent, quick to seek your forgiveness, and uh, showing grace and mercy and compassion to everyone around us, Lord, giving them room for the grace that they need. We love you, Father, and thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.